March 9th, the Russian Space Agency signed an agreement with China's National Space Administration to develop a new lunar space station. On March 23rd, a Chinese, the Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi and his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, issued a joint statement offering an alternative vision for a global governance in opposition to a US-led international order. When Americans think of a global menace and US adversary, one of two countries comes to mind, China or Russia. What risks do they actually pose, especially when they are increasingly working together to counter US dominance? Good evening and welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. My name is Kirsten Cullenberg, the Programs Manager here at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program tonight on China and Russia, the two major threats facing the US, features Dr. Jonathan Ward, founder of the Atlas Organization, and Jack Devine of the Arkin Group. They will be joined in conversation by Mike Capps of Raytheon. You can purchase your copies of both Mr. Devine's book, which is Spy Master's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression, and Dr. Ward's book, China's Vision of Victory, at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Our audience receives 10% off their purchase from Interabang Books online store by using the code DFWWORLD. And remember that discount code is good for any of the books in your shopping cart, not just these two. We have a full schedule of virtual programs. So remember to check our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Now I'd like to welcome our moderator and a member of the council's board of directors, Mike Capps. Mike has been director of strategic development for Raytheon for 13 years in strategic planning and execution for several product lines and technology licensing programs. He was director of strategic planning for the prior 31 years at Raytheon and its legacy company, eSystems. What you may not know about Mike is that he's also a composer, a man of many talents indeed. Mike, thank you for joining us. And I am so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. Um, I think a lot of us remember the last th three decades or so since the end of the Cold War, you know, with the outlook of a unipolar world in the 90s, we had giddy talk of a peace dividend, explosive growth and global trade. But recently, I think uh, we've come to see Russia and China, not as near peers as we called them in the defense establishment, but actual peers, and, and have come to understand the significant challenges that they offer the US and their allies. Um, where R Russia threatens the very foundation of Western democracy through disinformation, uh, some would say that with their theft of intellectual property, the Chinese have basically accomplished the greatest wealth transfer in human history. And while we see those as kind of surprising and shocking revelations, our guests tonight see these two rivals in the longer lens of continuity and more of their commitment to a persistent strategy. Jack Devine and Jonathan D.T. Ward both have books out on Russia and China. And we're gonna look at this evening at what these rivals want and what they're doing to get it. So it's my pleasure tonight to introduce Jack Devine distinguished career professional from the intelligence community, uh, among his posts, the Associate Deputy Director of Operations for the CIA. And as part of that, as a player in many, many notable events that we would have seen in the headlines the past 30 years, including a key player in the orchestration of Russia's exit from Afghanistan. He brings a career intelligence professional's view of Russia in his book, Spy Master's Prison. Uh, we also welcome Jonathan D.T. Ward, 
Jonathan has emerged the last uh, few years as one of the most clear and distinct voices on China, uh, bringing an interdisciplinary view with uh, cultural, economic, and security expertise, much of it gained on the ground. Um, he is a trusted advisor for the US government and many international corporations on their Asian strategy. And his recent book, China's Vision of Victory, is, a, as mentioned, a great accompaniment to, uh, to Jonathan's uh, book, as, to uh, uh, Jack's book as well. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, you each have knowledge of both Russia and China, so it's a great opportunity for us to compare and contrast uh, these two nations. But let me start first uh, with the question, why did you write your books? So let's start with Jack. There's a, an old adage, uh, you know, by General MacArthur, you know, old soldiers uh, never die, they, they fade away. He gave that in his farewell address in Congress. And I would say old intelligence officers fade away unless they have a pen. So uh, if you wanna have a voice, if you feel you have something to say about the intelligence business or foreign affairs. I find you can go to many meetings and talk until you're blue in the face. But if you write one article, you'll be surprised how much, and particularly in this day and age, how much you can get your voice out. So um, I did, uh, this is the second book. The first one was more about the covert action, the James Bond part of the intelligence world, if you want to dramatize it. And this is more, into the nitty gritty of intelligence operations and uh, efforts to use intelligence and cyber for national security goals. So there's a lot of spy cases in it in the past and in the current day. And what's fascinating for me is to place them side by side and see how many of the same traits are there and the same strategy, which is one of the most startling things when I think back on it. I never thought we'd be talking about the Cold War in anything other than a historical context. You said earlier, we had Pax Americana when the wall came down. And I think I want to bring people back to a realization of what that, that means. So I, I wrote the book with that intent, and I'm an old teacher. I used to teach high school when I got out of college and went to the CIA. And I, I really enjoy sharing and, and talking to people about events that, and, and the intelligence business. Jonathan, same question to you. Why did you write your book? Thanks. Um, Mike, I was concerned that the United States was not going to wake up to the China challenge. And you know, when I drafted my book in 2017 and 18, we were still, I think, um, just ahead of a major moment, which was a turning point in US-China relations with the, the US-China trade war. And, and since then, I mean, I think we've seen a, a massive uh, change in our attention to China as an adversary, as a rival, um, as, as a threat to the country. Um, whereas for, for quite a long time, I mean, China was thought of as essentially a business opportunity and possibly a, a partner for stability and security in the world. And, you know, I spent um, over a decade, really, from, the, from my early 20s when I began learning um, Russian and Chinese language as an undergraduate and then traveling widely in, in both countries, but especially in China, um, you know, and, and I was all over uh, Xinjiang and Tibet, you know, going um, hitchhiking around those regions, seeing a side of China that certainly was not, I think, uh, visible to most Americans. And that was, you know, a decade plus ago. And I wound up doing a doctorate at Oxford in the history of modern China. I mean, it just sort of triggered in me seeing the, the you know, human rights abuses and the, and the nature of, um, you know, the, the way the party sort of was, was leading the national conversation. It was about 
returning to power and, and having enemies and those sorts of things that I thought was, was lost on us. And they were also quite obviously making uh, enormous strides economically around the world and militarily in their region. And my essential concern was that we wouldn't put the picture together and we'd never uh, get there fast enough. And then the book came out and, and sort of simultaneously uh, US policy changed massively. And the question remains, do we understand this well enough uh, comprehensively enough? Um, can we win this contest? And, and does the whole country get it as opposed to, um, you know, the government and the national security establishment, which I believe do understand this very, very clearly. I think it's very important, however, um, that across the United States, uh, you know, as citizens, we understand these issues. Yeah. Thank you for that. So let's, let's just pile in. Let me start, Jack, with you a question. You know, what is it that the Russians want? And what is their strategy for getting it? Can well, you say that in a nutshell? Well, that is in a nutshell. One of the reasons, uh, you know, I'm, I looked at the book is because I thought we were spending, rightfully so, a lot of attention on China. I think it is our geopolitical military threat in the future. But when when I was looking at it, I realized that we're missing one of the big big stories, which is the Russians have never stopped operating against the U.S. as its top priority. I mentioned earlier in the book that there was a fellow who was the KGB res deputy resident in New York. And when he uh, joined me to work with us under as a spy, um, uh, he said that the number one threat was um, uh, for the Russians and the KGB was the United States, second NATO, and third China. And when he came out in 2004, he said, well, you know, what's interesting is the number one threat is the U.S., number two is um, NATO and number three is China. So what, I, what I'm saying, what do they want? Uh, they still consider us, and this is where I think they're wrong-footed. I don't think we need to be adversaries, but they look at us as the number one challenge competitor. And in that context, they've developed a strategy which I don't think we're, we're really focused on. It's not just collecting information in the United States, which one would say in the spy business, that's fair game. Everybody's collecting as much as they can. The big change took place in the election of 2016 when they used it politically. And that is not what happened in the Cold War. We did not operate inside each other's country, countries post-Stalin. So when you ask the question, what do they want? When you look at their overall strategy, and I, as I said in my opening remarks, I find it really uh, extraordinary that I'm talking about a country that now is deploying a Cold War strategy. They want the same things that they wanted in their strategy then, to weaken their neighbors, to gain access to warm water ports, to have Ukraine back in the system. I mean, it was, if you looked at what his game plan was, there was never a doubt that he was gonna try and regain control over, over Ukraine. And then the last part, because I go through this in the book, as you know, in many places, They've always been, both sides have been in disinformation business against each other. I think the Russians invested much more time and effort in this, the, uh, the dissembling of information and disinformation because they, had a, they didn't have a stronger story. We were selling America, they had, to make, they had to do a lot of disinformation work. So part of their strategy today is to use disinformation, not to get a, 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 an uprising in the United States because that outcome is unclear and for any country you don't want that kind of stability, but they want us weak politically. And I think they've been more, much more successful. And I don't think we're sitting back and looking at the real ramifications of this intervention in our political process, not just breaking into the cyber and 
that that's anticipated and understood. So I think that's you know that's important when you look at them. That the objective is an old stale strategy, which Putin is deploying quite effectively. And I, I wish he would look at the world differently, but he's not. So they want us weak. So, so Jonathan, let me ask you a similar question. What is it that the Chinese want and what is their strategy for getting it? Right, and here, you know, one has to put this really firmly and squarely on the Communist Party of China, which has controlled uh, this country for 70 years now. And um, there's a deep continuity to, to what they're seeking, which is to return as they see it, return China to its position of supremacy in the world, a position of centrality, as they put it. So the whole idea is that they're they're going to um, basically become the, the, the largest economy um, with a, a military that is second to none that can beat you know, any other military, and they're going to have unrivaled global influence. And, and they draw on this, uh, they draw this from essentially an ideological uh, view of history. It's their reading of history that China was, um, you know, the, essentially the um, supreme um, place in the world. And then it was humiliated by uh, other empires in Western Japanese, etc., in what they call the century of humiliation. And that under the party's uh, guidance, they will rise again to a position of, of undisputed uh, power with, with essentially no, no true rival. And on one hand, that's just their own um, path as they see it. I mean, they call it the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. But on the other hand, um, you know, the way that they look at this, what stands in the way, of course, is the United States of America. So this idea of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation is not just about um, establishing a new world order. Uh, and they call that the community of destiny for for, for humankind. So they have an entirely worked out framework here that they explain it in great deal, detail with their own documents and vision of victory. But um, in order to do that, they have to break the US-led order. And, and they've taken us as their main enemy um, you know, since the, the inception of the People's Republic of China in 1949. Um, you know, they, fighting the communist, I mean, we fought the same regime in the Korean War in 1950. And today their military planners um, are, you know, working on systems that are designed to, to fight us again and our allies. So there's, I think, a very big continuity to what they seek to achieve, but also to their um, essential state of conflict with the United States. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So if we, uh, we see the Chinese and the Russian threats now as peers, uh, and our national defense strategy. And it's a lot more than defense. It's also economics um, and political rivalry. In what ways would you gentlemen say that the Chinese and the Russian threats are the same or different in, in significant ways? Well, I would do the different part and then I'll let what Jonathan, why don't you do me a favor and do the similarities, right? But uh, I think the difference is China has to balance its relationship with us in the context of its very close ties economically to us, right? 
So they have to be very careful. For example, the 2020 election, they looked at, according to the intelligence community report just a few weeks ago, they looked at meddling in the election and decided, no, that's not, that's, that's off the board. And what I'm saying, as I said earlier, is the Russians are looking at this quite differently. They are meddling internally inside of our, our political uh, system. That both countries are collecting intelligence. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And who's most aggressive against this directly right now? If you look at what's going on in Ukraine, I mean, they're pushing back, they're pushing very, very hard there into a space that I think the Western world was hoping would not, not fall under their control. So I think there's an aggressiveness that is quite different than the Chinese where they're building up a tremendously strong military with a long range term of just overwhelming us in power economically and geopolitically. When you look at Russia, one thing I would tell you, the big difference is their GDP is closer to Spain or Italy, not China. So they're punching way, way above their weight. And I think that's the difference, but not to be misconstrued, even though they're a smaller, less power, they're being more aggressive towards us. And that's a distinction that I, I think a lot of people fail to, to grasp. Well, I think when one looks at how they're the same, I might alter that a little bit. And let's talk about how they're complementary. Because as you have Russia, you know, trying to, as Jack's pointed out, you know, in, in an incredibly eye-opening way in Spymaster's Prism, I mean, they are operating inside the United States in ways that are hugely disruptive and dangerous and, and much more confrontational in that sense. But then China's busy out there establishing, um, you know, trading relationships, uh, you know, partnerships of all kinds all around the world. I mean, from Latin America to Southeast Asia to Europe, um, you know, building in this sort of alternate um, de facto economic infrastructure just based on their sheer heft. And at the same time, they have a very clear strategy to, as they said, it to, to uh, defend their expanding overseas interests. So they see this as ultimately protected by their military, but they're looking for time, it appears, um, to, to build in uh, the, the sort of appropriate military structure that will allow them to, to defend these long-term interests. So if you, while you have Russia disrupting um, you know, just playing in sort of active confrontation game with the U.S. and with Europe. Um, you have China going out there and buying up, um, you know, uh, natural resources. I mean, establishing itself at the heart of supply chains. Um, you know, attracting capital from Wall Street and from London to to finance its its bigger ambitions. And I I think that the way they would probably look at this is is very much the way that actually uh, Stalin looked at China uh, at the beginning of the. Uh, Sino-Soviet relationship um, 70 years ago, where he said, you know, okay, Mao, you want to be my friend, you're going to take care of, of Asia while I take care of Europe. And then the next thing we had was the Korean War. Um, and, and here you have a Putin that's, uh, you know, keeping us all distracted in Europe um, with a China that, that, you know, I mean, they have at this point, joint exercises, joint um, military meetings of all kinds, I and mean, joint space plans, potentially even, I mean, it's a quite coordinated relationship, I think, at a conceptual level. But, um, you know, Russia disrupts us while China buys up, um, you know, all kinds of things. Back in uh, 2014, Jack, when I was writing the first book, uh, Good Hunting, I was talking about how terrorism would wane, not that it would go away and we could wake up one morning with a disaster, but that we looking at nation states and the rivalry again with nation states. And so coming to the similarity, if you look at Russia and China, I would submit that if we had an agent 
like we had Comrade Jay, both of them would be saying that the top of our list is America. We see them as an impediment to where we want to go. And therefore we will behave with different tactics on how to deal with this. But I think that's where the similarity is. And there's a risk, and Jonathan and I have often talked about this, the risk of them getting too close together. I believe there's a lot of embedded reasons why they're only going to go so far. Jonathan just touched on one of them with Stalin. But, but that, let us not lose sight of the fact that there's a real marriage of convenience here that can be quite troublesome for the, for the coming years. So that commonality of how they view us uh, is what I think is the binding, uh, binding characteristic. And I do like Jonathan's point about you know, the Russians looking to, to the West and China to Asia, and there's maybe a division of labor there, and China would be less effective in making those same, same inroads. But we have a serious problem, and I think that's why I enjoy talking to China with, in front of the World Affairs Council. And, you know, it's very useful to talk, to these things, talk about these things in the same context and try and get a handle on the overarching strategy of what we're looking at and how do we respond to that. I think, Jack, in your book, you do a good job of talking to the point that the inertia of the Russians really never waned after the fall of the, of the, the, the Berlin Wall. Um, but, and in some ways, uh, the Putin's Russia is more dangerous than the Soviet Union. Uh, can you gentlemen both talk a little bit about how um, uh, each country is kind of... Uh, uh, tied up in the personality of its leaders, what influence they have on uh, on their strategies. Well, the one that, the one point that I would stress is on your dangerous uh, dangerous point. Uh, the danger I see is the aggressiveness of Putin and willing to play in our home court. And the, the point that I wanted to make: this is not how the Cold War was fought despite all of the uh, movies and theater, there was an understanding between uh, both countries that uh, we, would not, we would not interfere. So uh, I, I don't want to lose sight of that. So, but Jonathan, I don't know if you want to take it further. I think that a lot has been made of Xi Jinping as, as the real um, sort of turning point in how China uh, approaches the world. And I, I would just say that that's um, sort of an oversimplification. I mean, what Xi Jinping is really doing is he's fulfilling a long-term trajectory um, that's, that was set up way before him. And I think, you know, as, as, as someone who's a, did my, you know, doctoral work in modern, the history of modern China and all that, it's very easy to see how the, the long-term program of the Communist Party has really fallen into this man's hands at a time where China has economic and military power and global influence. And that allows him to do things that, you know, Mao couldn't do or that Deng had to wait for or, you know, um, but, but, and I think he's more aggressive, more dangerous perhaps, um, you know, perhaps, you know, many say he's more powerful than, than recent Chinese leaders, but he's inheriting ultimately the vision of Mao Zedong. And even before that, Mao considered himself to be the heir to Sun Yat-sen. And there was this long-term idea that China would, would rise and sort of find itself at the uh, initially with a seat at the table among the world's leading powers. But ultimately, um, you know, there was this very determined, um, you know, nationalism that didn't allow 
um, the Communist Party, you know, to, to sit well with other countries. I mean, they fought the United States in the 1950s in Korea. They fought the USSR in 1969. They fought India in 1962, and they fought, you know, regional um, sort of limited conflicts as well. So, so I think you're you're talking about a country that there's a little bit of back to the future here. It's just the power um, has has increased so much, and it's increased uh, really because of um, the U.S. strategy towards China for the last. 30 years. I mean, we invited China in thinking that that would uh, be the right move uh, in terms of economic stability, security, all of that. And, and, and we've wound up with a world economy that is uh, incredibly dependent at present uh, on China. And, and the wealth transfer you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, the, the mass intellectual property theft that brought China from being essentially an agrarian nation to a nation that's now doing everything from um, electric vehicles to, to uh, cloud computing. Um, really came at the hands of, of um, economic uh, and commercial and corporate engagement with China. So, so we, we really allowed them to accelerate this trajectory in ways that probably would have been unimaginable to the founders of the PRC. Mike, one aspect of your question, I mean, it's so important that we get a handle on Putin, the person, and, and how important is he into the, in, in the scheme of things? And, and I think the more one looks at Putin, studies his career. I have a chapter called the Spy, Sky Master, uh, Spy Master President, you know, and the subtitle is, there's no such thing as a former KGB officer, right? And I would put, if I were, <laughs> if I were described as a spy master, uh, I would say there's no such thing as a, you know, former CIA person. I know what he's saying. It's not that either of us are on the payroll of the respective intelligence services, but it's a way of looking at the world. And I think to understand Russian policy, we have to go look at the evolution of Putin, how he looks at the world. And this is, again, the spy master's prism. And if we miss the point that he indeed at his core looks at the world, and again, I don't want to monopolize the discussion here, but if you look at what a, how a spy master looks at the world, uh, you, know, you will see that he has not really, mature, not mature, that isn't the right word, uh, grown away from his upbringing inside the KGB and the FSB. That is not to say, and I want to emphasize it, this is a man of great political cunning and skill. It wasn't just as a KGB officer. He was able to take the spy master's skills and apply the political uh, talents that he had. So I think Russia is about Putin. And there is a future because no matter how you look at the end of the story, there's a post-Putin period. But why we go through this, it's all about Putin and how he looks at the world. And we need to really have a great appreciation of that. We have a summit coming up. And if I were invited to brief the president, let's spend a lot of time psychoanalyzing the guy that you're going to sit across the table. You met him before as vice president. But Understanding this man, it's not all the countervailing forces inside the country. And I think Jonathan's saying the same thing about she. He's got an iron hand. Both of them, this is a similarity, have an iron hand on their system. Not without some fissures, but they're both very, very strong and they're the game in town. So that sets up a couple of good topics for us to double click on here uh, as, as we continue this discussion. Both China and, uh, you know, the first one would be the, the discussion of national security vis-a-vis -vis these two peers. And the other one is our economic relationships with them. Let me start with, with the first. 
and, and note that it's very clear that China and Russia have studied the American way of war. Uh, what conclusions would you say they've drawn uh, from, that, from that evaluation? That's a very, I mean, um, I guess if you said, if I were sitting with Putin, I would say, look, let's take a look at uh, Biden and let's look at the Americans and let's look at history. I think both, both uh, teams getting together need to look at, at history. So I think they would look, us, look at us through the, the history. One thing I find about Americans uh, is, and I include myself in this, we often underestimate just how really powerful we are and how powerfully we're viewed around, around the world. We're more restrainful in the use of our power. I know, you know, we've been to war and we can get into all of that, but as, as a nation, you know, we are often reluctant to use, you know, anywhere near the portion of power. So I, I think when they were, would look at us, the question, the key question would be how far can they push us? You know, when does this big giant really, how far can we take this Ukraine thing? What are they gonna do? One of the battlefields, which I, I know we're gonna get to, there's no way around it, is how we, how are we going to deal with the warfare, cyber warfare, where there are no rules, there's no visibilities, there are no agreements. So when and when and, e and even disagreement on what might constitute an act of war in that domain. Well, we better get that right. <laughs> we better get that right. I mean, I do think there's a point where we will inevitably push back in cyber, and my. It would not be to counsel against that under the right circuit, but I would counsel measured. You got to calibrate this because if you get it wrong, uh, you know, I don't want to get to the Iran issue, but you know, their response uh, when, uh, when in the last administration, uh, when they, we hit Soleimani, I mean, they fired a few missiles out in the desert. That was calculated. They knew they, they wanted to send a message, but they wanted to send too big of a message, right? And so we we may, if we can't jawbone this thing in the back room on what we will or will not do, and for me, number one is don't, don't mess around the United States. If we can't jawbone it, we're going to have to push so and do something, but it has to be calorie. It can't be bring down their infrastructure in, in Siberia. So I think this is a very, very treacherous area. So I think, uh, you know, we're probably, this is the beginning of a new administration and you can't go by the past that, you know, Biden did this or that. I mean, they really have to, they have to put their hat on. And I think it comes to how far do you push, but it is about pushing. It's not about giving. So a lot of, a lot of people acknowledge that China is really the pacing threat from a national security standpoint, particularly with their uh, anti-access, the night area approach. Jonathan, what would you say the Chinese have learned? Right. I mean, I, it, let's put it this way. I, th I think that, the, you know, classically, we, we understand that, that Russia and China basically uh, saw Persian Gulf one in 91 and, and realized, wow, that's what a, a modern uh, U.S. military can do. I mean, a military that was built um, at that point, I guess to be, it was superior to, to the Soviet Union, but really of a different era at this point. Mm -hmm. And you know, China has developed systems that can absolutely um, disrupt our, our sort of uh, platform-centric, you know, I mean, carrier groups in the in the island chains is is probably not a, a good strategy anymore. I mean, they've developed uh, hypersonic sea skimming missiles that can, um, you know, probably pretty hard to defend against that when they've built enough of them. And so, so that's just the Pacific theater. I mean, if they were able to, for example, 
um, you know, crater our, our runways, take out our bases, uh, sink our, our carriers. I mean, we still have a substantial undersea advantage, but, um, you know, you're talking about a conventional military force that has been built up, um, the, the, as General McMaster said, the largest peacetime buildup in human history. So think of it that way, or at least modern history. Um, and that's all directed at us in Japan and maybe in a few other places. So um, that's just one side of it, though, because there's another side to China's way of war where I don't think we yet have a way of war for this and we're going to need to develop one. And, and that's really on the economic front. I mean, how do you play the multidimensional game that they're playing where it's not simply about um, you know, uh, the military balance in the Pacific? It's also about um, you know, buying up or building up the most important strategic industries and, and emerging technologies, synthesizing that all into one essentially uh, coherent in industrial base that is that could be far superior to ours. I mean, we've really offshored our industrial base to China uh, in large part, and um, you know that that's a that's a huge problem for us. And then at the same time, to develop these economic relationships all over the world, they've surpassed us as the number one uh, trading. Uh, nation in the world and the number one uh, destination for foreign direct investment. So we are capitalizing these guys as they do this. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing about this, that even with the knowledge that we have now about, um, you know, China's capabilities militarily, their, their intentions, their human rights atrocities, um, you know, uh, we, we are still funding them, still funding their companies, investing in all of that. Um, the U.S.-China Economic Security Review Commission released its list of Chinese uh, companies on U.S. exchanges uh, this week, and and two trillion dollars worth of uh, market cap on our exchanges, um, and and plenty of those companies are tied um, into China's civil military fusion capabilities. So the integrated relationship is one that they've played to their advantage, and we've played largely to our disadvantage strategically. Even though there have been some economic benefits, um, and, and that's what we're going to have to figure out. I mean, this I believe that this contest with China is won or lost in the economic domain, as long as we can maintain deterrence in the Pacific. But, but we're gonna to have to learn how to do that. They're, they're experts and we're, uh, we're not there yet. Well, while we're on- Let the, me put it, Mike, I could just put a short sure. footnote on it. I mean, I think it's you know, axiomatic that the Chinese are going to be you know, the competitor, the political, economic, military competitor. Right? I think we, we see that. What is really going to be very important to track is their willingness, their will to confront us. In other words, the Russians have already decided that they, they have the will and they are confronting us, right? So the question, and again, Jonathan's an expert on this, is that there's no question they're going to have more submarines. They're going to have more, they're going to stretch muscle, try and build alliance. I do think there's a lot of limitations there. We can get into that. But there is a big issue, and if we get to, we'll get to Taiwan, and certainly again, Jonathan, I would defer to him on that. But they may have all the, this tremendous power, but they're going to look at it, and the question is, when they become the threat, is when we can tell that they're prepared to use this strength for you know a strategic purpose, and uh, I, I think that's where the real danger is. I think we have to do the things that Jonathan's recommending. The threat is not imminent. We're already, what I'm saying, we're really arm wrestling already. Well, not arm wrestling, they're already slapping us around a little bit. Mm -hmm. Well, while we're on the topic of large financial flows between the different countries, you have a question uh, from the audience on the amount of US uh, debt that's carried in China. Uh, does that seem to you gentlemen as a stabilizing 
trend or is that something that uh, poses some specific risks? I, I think that's very, very overrated, honestly. I think we can all sleep easy about that. I mean, China owns about 1 trillion of our debt. I mean, the vast majority of our debt is publicly held and we've just added about four or five uh, trillion. So, so we're quite, uh, you know, just uh, the debt game is its own subject, but um, no, they, they own less than Japan and less than Britain, I believe, or, or those sort of, they interchange for top three foreign holders. Um, so don't worry about that. That's, I think, not the concern. I think the, the bigger concern is, is U.S. financing um, of Chinese uh, strategic industries and emerging technologies. I mean, Wall Street wants Chinese yeah. tech stocks. That's a bigger problem than, you know, whatever they might, you know, a minuscule amount really percentage-wise. I mean, you're talking about, yeah, they, they, you know, 4% um, of our debt. Let me return to the, uh, uh, to the national security realm. We have two new domains uh, and, and you know, to con be concerned about in conflict. We've just uh, launched Space Force. Uh, U.S. very concerned about space and the importance of space to America's uh, national security strategy and the cyber domains. Um, you know, we've got talks of moon bases. So from the seafloor to cislunar orbit, we've got a vast conflict domain. Um, how are the Chinese and the Russians looking at space and cyber as part of their military tactics and, and uh, doctrine? Let me do this. Let me do the cyber. Let me space. Then cover space to you. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you look at their written work, just like Jonathan was talking about the the. the Communist Party, Xi, there's writings. Yes. It's not a mystery. When you look at uh, Russia war thinking, military strategy, you know, this, the strategy includes what was more colloquially uh, referred to as soft power. It's not so soft. It's using political this, uh, disinformation and cyber. Cyber is an extremely powerful political weapon if you decide decide to, uh, to use it. So, you know, we see very clear examples of the Russians collecting and running technical operations, cyber operations against the United States for collection purpose. But you don't see them, as I said earlier, using it as part of a military strategy. It's to collect information. And this is a big difference. And the Russians are using cyber and they've used it in Georgia, they've used it in Ukraine. In other words, they actually use cyber as an instrument of power in, in their confrontations. And we need to recognize it for that. Instead of just thinking about, the, it's very important what Dark Side did and very important what they did with solar winds, all of these things. I believe in many ways it's just the tip of the iceberg of capabilities. And I, I would hope that we could easily match any of those, those capabilities. So I think it's an integral part. It's not a hidden speculative thing. They're very bold about how they use it. And it comes back and it has deeper roots, much deeper roots than American intelligence and disinformation. But let me cap it there. I want to hear all about outer space. Right. So so if, if, if you don't mind, and, and Jack, you mentioned the importance of their own words and their own writings. And that's just, I think that's the, the true guide to both of these adversaries. I mean, fortunately, they've been absolutely explicit, um, you know, certainly uh, the Communist Party of China about what they're trying to do. And I, I, if you don't mind, I'll just read something from Vision of Victory here on uh, part of, the, there's a whole section on space. Um, but, you know, China's vision for space 
fits clearly within its ideology of national restoration and military dominance. As Lieutenant General uh, Jang Yulin, former Deputy Chief of the Armament Department of the Central Military Commission explains, the earth moon space will be strategically important for the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, adding that the future of China's manned space program is not a moon landing, which is quite simple, or even the manned Mars program, which remains difficult, but continual exploration of the earth moon space with ever developing technology. Now, keep in mind, this is a military um, you know, general in, in, on the Central Military Commission. And then it goes on. So the director of China's lunar mission uh, goes so far as to compare the moon and Mars to islands claimed by China in the East and South China seas. Here's what he says. The universe is an ocean. The moon is the Diaoyu Islands. Mars is the Huangyan Island, um, which is an island in the South China Sea claimed and effectively controlled by China. If we don't go there now, even though we're capable of doing so, then we will be blamed by our descendants. If others go there, they will want to take over and you won't be able to go even if you want to. This is reason enough. So, you know, we've all heard the history of, uh, or just the constant discussion of island building in the South China Sea, sort of military incursions in the East China Sea. And, and here you go with their, their comparing uh, the moon and Mars to the islands they claim. So it's, it's a pretty, it just shows you how extraordinary their, their general vision is. And of course their capabilities are ones that we're witnessing on a regular basis with the, the launch of a space station and all that. And then the, the possibility of Russia-China collaboration in space is always on the table between the two countries. Um, so, so yeah, again, and, and, and just bringing it back to the whole question of what this means for the US. Um, you know, I mean, in the Cold War, we dealt with one superpower and, and its occasional allies. Today, we're dealing with um, an economic rival with, with a military that's built to defeat ours and its um, strategic partner, which is our former adversary in the Cold War. So it, this is a new combination and we're gonna have to get ready for, uh, for a very tough game. Mike, there's one point about space you know, I actually defer to you because you're, you're sitting in a, an institution that has great knowledge about it. But one of the things I've always been struck by, both in the intelligence and science and technology area, one of the most important things about being in any sort of race and space is how, how much effort, money is thrown at that project that develops new technologies. So it is a, an extremely important test bed. In other words, if we froze our space program at any point, I would predict that whoever's moving forward is going to be breaking through with new technologies that will add new military capabilities and intelligence capabilities to it. So, um, I mean, I wish I knew all the ins and outs of how we get a rocket in outer space, but I do see the product. You know, we started with the U-2 collecting information and satellites went up <laughs> the main reason was to be able to monitor military targets so you know yes it's fun to land on the moon but there's many 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 other uh, capabilities that come from a space program so and you know again forward-thinking people will look about how you conduct war from outer space i'm more fixated on how we conduct it in the cyber world but I, I certainly don't minimize by any stretch of the imagination the threat that uh, an unsuccessful or losing, losing uh, market share in space, what that would mean for us. We have, we have a couple of questions on the thread uh, talking about potential flashpoints. There's, there's notions of, or a mention of it, what's going on in Israel today, uh, possible flashpoints in Baltics or 
Uh, I think Jonathan, you mentioned Taiwan a little bit earlier as well. Are there uh, serious risks of being brought into conflict uh, kind of accidentally with Russia or China on these flashpoints? I would just add Ukraine to that. Yeah, Ukraine, correct. Okay, so I, I mean, I think you've identified um, you know, the issues, but Jonathan, do you, you wanna have shot right. at it? Sure, I mean, I, I think um, we have we to remember that- We could talk about Taiwan and spend the rest of the night. Yeah, well, sure, I'm gonna, it, I'm gonna throw it to you, Jonathan, but I'm gonna get a, a two cents in on Taiwan at some point. Right, right, no, Taiwan is, uh, that's the, uh, the one that we we really could could spend a great deal of time on, isn't it? And Ukraine too. I mean, I think the um, you know my concern would be that that there's a tendency in the in the U.S. to think that um, conflict with Russia and China would be purely by accident. That if we just have the right amount of communication, um, you know, we'll avoid this because it's in everyone's interest to avoid this. Um, I, I think there's some truth to that, but I don't think that explains the entire picture. I mean, you're talking about at least in the case of China. Uh, a government that is, uh, you know, very vocal about preparing its country for war. They speak all the time about we must prepare to fight and win wars. Um, this is part of the constant rhetoric. Um, their newspapers are full of, uh, you know, very uh, militaristic rhetoric on Taiwan. Um, they they killed Indian soldiers uh, last year on the Himalayan borders. They, you know, have done what they've done in Hong Kong, and they've seen no real consequences to any of that. And if anything, the the pandemic that we all find ourselves in is one that many economists agree has accelerated China's um, sort of uh, position in the world economy. So, so I think they, there's, there's this idea that um, things are going quite in their direction. Um, and, and, and you're talking about a military that, as Jack mentioned, the question of if they do decide to use it, um, that's the real test of what we're dealing with. And um, that's obviously where the United States should be concentrated is to ensure deterrence. I mean, we have to be sure to build capability and broadcast intent that they will not succeed at um, any such operation in the, in the Taiwan Straits. And in the meantime, and here's a, an official national newspaper, I think just today in China saying, um, with China's strength, it needs to make the US increasingly sure that if the US launches a war with the People's Liberation Army in China's adjacent waters, it will be defeated. China's strength in Air Force, Navy, and ground-based missiles is sufficient to overwhelm US troops and its allies. And China has a strong will to use these forces to defend its core interests. So, you know, that's what it sounds like. I mean, that's a popular newspaper just written um, for popular consumption. So, um, so I think we're dealing with, we have to remember that we're dealing with authoritarian uh, societies and countries. And, and it's not the same as, um, you know, in, I mean, in history, I mean, these are the ones that if not, if they are not deterred, they do go to war. So I think we have to look at this, not through our own lens of, of simply um, it's in no one's interest, but but places that that have quite you know explicit territorial claims and are building forces to execute on those claims. Um, that's what, that's the problem we're dealing with. It's not simply like the, the peacetime is is something that they everyone. Mike, you, you, you know, queued up Mike, you, you queued up several good uh, places to, to to we could talk about, uh, and I I used to be asked from time to time. What kept me up awake, awake at night, other than my children and grandchildren? It's, uh, you know, it was India, India and Pakistan because they both had nuclear weapons, been to war three times, long-standing disputes. But I, I slept reasonably well still, right? But I, I moved that off, and I would say Taiwan remains a, a real troublesome spot. I don't see the immediacy of it, right? It's not like tomorrow. They're, they're, I think Jonathan 
because I've heard him, I'm going to steal his lines. But, you know, this, this is going to be, they're going to want to be pretty sure that they have us scoped out, which really gets to my point about all of these things. Um, you know, the question of communication. You know, yes, we hope, well, the way you avoid it is you have good communications. Well, I would actually add understanding. In other words, we need to have really, uh, you know, deep discussions with these adversaries to get some understandings, whether it's cyber, Taiwan, and, and try to lay the framework. But I, I, mean, know, I, mean, spy, I come from the, the spy masters world. And, you know, when I look at just about every problem, it starts with, you need really good intelligence. You really have to know what's inside the Politburo in China. You really have to have those sources. Otherwise, you can analyze yourself yep. that. You can get five brilliant analysts in one room and five in the other, and they can come up with different views reading the same material. You need that capability, whether it's technical capability or human capability, you need to do that. If you fail, the great prospects of miscalculations. And I see today that whatever our intelligence sources are producing, great. But I, it feels to me like you know, no one quite has the sources that gives you the certitude that, that you need. And that's, you know, maybe I hope I'm wrong on this. So each one of those problems, I would overlay with these considerations and, and the way we avoid the problem is that having good intelligence and making sure we try and get a stand, an understanding wherever, wherever we can. And uh, I think we're, we're falling short and no, it may not be our fault by any means. So I, I would apply that to all of them rather than going down the list, but I'm glad to talk about them. I would put Ukraine very high on the list because it's so essential to the Russians and we really need to understand that. It's such a bold thing to go in the Crimea and take over the Easter egg part. What happens if they keep rolling? I mean, you've got to really have to think about what is our response. And same with Hong Kong. We are, I mean, we're we're a... on the same ground we're going to be in Taiwan. At what point do they think we're not going to respond? Yeah. And that's when we're into very dangerous territory in both of those problems. Yeah. Right. And I, I, if I could just add to that, I mean, I think that that's what we have to remember is that there's a simultaneity to these problems. I mean, they began at virtually the same time. I mean, when Crimea happened in 2014, and China was moving an oil rig into Vietnamese EEZs, seeing that there was no response, and then it was island building time. And, and today you've got, I mean, you know, Jack, I think, I mean, Crimea is very popular in Russia, isn't it? And, and you know, the, the sort of South China Sea approach is very popular in, in China. So, so um, you know, th these are real issues for us, that they're able to sort of do this. And what I would be worried about is that um, we wind up looking at these as separate issues. I mean, I mean that's, um, you know, because their strategies are complementary. I mean, if we wound up with something happening in Europe where we just put all our focus on Russia and that just opens the door for China. Um, I mean, at some, on some level, we kind of want to treat this, I think, as a combined um, operation, whether, whether in reality or just sort of in, in you know, it, that I may not that, be how it's, but. I share that view, Jonathan. I, I right. really think one of our shortcomings isn't our capability. It's having a counter strategy. Both of those countries have a clear strategy on how they're dealing with us. And I, I, don't think, I, I don't think that's, I don't think we have a national consensus or a strategy around it. So yeah, I think you're I'm going to, I'm going to come to that question. I'm going to come to that question in a minute before we, with the time we have left. One question I want to ask to bounce off something Jonathan said, and there's a few questions in the thread about this is, you know, uh, 
given all this, what should American companies be thinking about when they're doing business in Russia or China? Do they, do they or should they have a role in our national strategy? This is my favorite country uh, question and favorite country. Yeah, but like, you know, I set up my, you know, personally, this is what I do now is I, I set up my consulting company just when I finished Oxford. And initially I was a consultant to the defense department and then started working with US Fortune 500s to help them, you know, see the geopolitics of, of, of Asia and really the world at this point um, much more clearly. And I think that, I mean, this is the most important thing is the only way we win this is if we engage our companies which are the, the whole of our economy. I mean, our, our Fortune 1000, 1,000 top companies in America are two thirds of the US GDP. And I believe that we won our great contests in the past by in, engaging our private sector. And we can only win this one if, if our private sector is um, working with, with, um, with, with America like, as part of the, the US grand strategy. So, so I really believe in that. And um, I would love to see business leaders take a much more active role in this. I mean, from the C-suites to the boards um, to, to really understand that at some point we are going to have to choose sides in this. Um, this is not, I believe, something where one can simply keep both governments at arm's length. Um, and, and that will be a bigger problem for some companies than others. Um, but you know, the question as to, uh, and everyone's gonna have to solve that uniquely. And that's, that's I think the challenge in front of uh, you know, boards and C-suites is to realize that this is, this is real stuff and you're gonna have to find a way through it. Um, but you know, as to um, U.S. funding of, of uh, you know um, our corporations and, and Wall Street funding China's growth, I mean that's something where at a certain point government is going to have to draw a line for Wall Street. Um, you know, I just don't think I think the the, the companies, you know, um, it, it, the operating companies can look at this and say, look, the the long term risks of being dependent on China and supply chain and for market. I mean that's that risk assessment should be enough to let you see that maybe other options are, are good uh, to consider. And then, um, but Wall Street, I think is, you know, they can make a buck funding China's growth, funding China's strategic industries. They've got to stop. I think that's where our citizens need to engage. Our Congress needs to engage. And we simply have to set up guardrails and, and restrictions on that. And, and really, I, I mean, I think the exciting thing here at, at the end of all of this, the thing we haven't talked about is US strategy. And as somebody who spent a decade abroad in, in all these countries, um, you know, really the, uh, I mean, the most exciting place in the world is going to be the United States because what it's going to take for us to win this is to is is going to we're going to have to reach a new horizon in what we're capable of. I mean, across every major industry, every key technology, every geography in the world, I mean, we're going to have to reach a new sort of new heights. And I think um, if we could get Wall Street to invest in America, and if we could get our companies to be building towards a horizon that enables um, the power and prosperity of our country and our allies. And we have great allies, I mean, from Europe to India to Asia. Um, I mean, it's a really still a very broad world to be working in. Um, I, I would love to see that. I mean, I think if we could make that change uh, before it's too late, but you know, fully and thoroughly make that change, uh, we'll be able to do extraordinary things. Now, your point, Mike, was, uh, you know, can American business uh, bring anything to the table. And, and I would say it does, and it does, but it, it's often in a tactical, specific way, you know, shedding light on some aspect of, of electricity or power or engineering. Um, and, and there's a role and it continues to be critically important. National defense is in the hands of, of uh, 
of our, our, our business world. The cyber world is in the hand. So there really does have to be a partnership. And I spend a lot of my time, and so does Jonathan, talking, and our clients are businessmen. Mm -hmm. Uh, what what I find is just how, and much, much of this is the world too. One of the things I've learned in CIA over the years, I kept waiting for the big strategy. When do you get to the, what floor in the building is the strategy being worked? When you get up there and you look right, hey, it's us. Where's the strategy? Anybody got any ideas? So even in our very best corporations, mm -hmm. people don't have time for strategy. I mean, I will tell you when CIA was formed and I've read about it more than being part of it. They spent a lot of time on the strategic part of thinking. And I'm finding it's interesting. I'll often be invited by a group of businessmen. We talk and the great lunch, they've enjoyed it. But, you know, that's, that's not strategic thinking about the world. And I think what Jonathan and I are both saying is there is something really changing in the game here about nation states yes. that is going to impact directly on them from a very strategic point of view. And if they're still talking about how to make a deal and how to, how to make a a buck in, in yeah. China, they may be missing the big story. So by all means, come to the table. But I think corporate America needs to think like the World Affairs Council is thinking, what does this all mean to my enterprise, my country's enterprise? And I think there's a, a more of a paucity in this space than I, I might have imagined. So, and, and I would have loved, I think, to, to talk a little bit more about our strategic response uh, to China and to Russia. But I think we're out of time, but I would just go to say that um, as opposed to a lot of people who write these kinds of books, you guys have very specific recommendations, I think in your books about how the US uh, should be thinking and, uh, and changing our behavior regarding these two organizations. So I can certainly commend uh, your books to anyone who's curious and what should we do next? So I think we may be getting the high side from Kristen. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I just want to thank all three of you gentlemen, Mike, Jack, Jonathan, for an enlightening discussion. You've given me a lot to think about and I hope that our audience has benefited from your expertise. A reminder to our audience that once again, you can purchase your copies of both Mr. Devine's book, By Master's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression, and Dr. Ward's book, China's Vision of Victory, at Interrobang Books, our local bookstore partner, and a reminder that you can use the code DFWWORLD for a 10% discount off of their online store. Thank you all for joining us tonight, and thank you, gentlemen, for a great discussion. Have a good evening. Oh,